Hi, and welcome to The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And this week was yet another anniversary of 9-11. So we figured that we could take a little bit of time to reflect on uh, how our relationship and thoughts about uh, 9-11 have changed over the years. And also in not just the post-9-11 world, but also in the post-9-11 world in the sort of post-Trump, potentially uh, (laughs) anti-Trump era, um, about how our relationship and how it's changed uh, our thoughts and feelings um, with these two things intersecting and being layered on top of each other. So we're going to, since we're talking about a serious topic, we're going to avoid the uh, fun banter at the beginning because it seems (laughs) kind of inappropriate. Um, (laughs) I I know. Apologies to the people who that's their favorite part of the show, but you know, here, here we are. Um, So first of all, like nine 11 crept up on me this year. Um, Yeah. It it, it was uh, a few days ago now because we had some recording uh, hiccups, but how when you did realize, hey, it's 9-11, like, what what were your thoughts? How did you spend the day? How did it, how did, how does your day change or get impacted when you realize uh, that it's the anniversary? Uh, well, my first thought when I remembered it was, oh, God, I said I'd never forget. Uh, so, you know, there's that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, like, you and I have such a vastly different relationship with 9-11 just because of our proximity to Manhattan. So, mm-hmm. um I remember it as um, a scary time that was that was bisected by it being a very silly time in Evansville, Indiana. And by silly, I mean, um, for example, pondering on uh, 96.1, which became a hot station, Um, like if we should harden the mall in case it would be a target, uh, that would be the Green River Road. not Washington Square. Motherfucker, what was the name of that mall? Oh, Evansvillians. Hop into the comments. Uh, <laughs> but there, you know, there was just like this ridiculous, ridiculous panic in yeah. middle America where it was like, they're going to come after us next. And it's like, bitch, no, they're not. Like, like this is, you know, what, what's so funny to me about 9-11 is it became to me sort of the era of empty symbology, right? Like, mm. it's like when I think of like, so like Recession Corps, um, McBling, uh, Recession Corps and McBling get used kind of interchangeably to describe the sort of post 9-11 uh, recession style of the of the era. And the whole thing really could be encapsulated with that kind of McBling. Um, uh, by McBling, we mean like, gaudy you know um bedazzled and bejeweled things that are made of plastic and there's no value to them right it's just yeah. like glitz for the sake of glitz but um in my part of the world where the threat was very very far away it sort of turned into um exactly that just this sort of like mcbling messaging where it felt like <sighs> um between the sort of fear theater of the post 9-11 era and the weird like Tobey Maguire, that's my country is like, we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. That's my part of the United States. And so it was just this like gross, like my least favorite grossest kind of like male bravado sort of tinging everything. Um, And this like really like 
you know, I've told the story before, but I got dumped in this really sad and, and like embarrassing way. And I went to my friend, Mark, who is a record who like records music. And I was like, cause the guy who dubbed me was a musician, part-time mm. musician sucked at it. And I was like, Mark, let's record a record so that it can, I can show this guy like how he sucks. And Mark paused for a long time and he goes, Oh wow. He really hurt you. Didn't he? Yeah. And it's the same thing where it was like, man, our entire our American psyche was so deeply hurt and scared by 9-11 that it's like we were ready to fucking fight yeah. anybody. Like, come and get me. You're not going to catch me slipping again. Always keep my dukes up. And if you tell me that I'm a pussy, I'm going to put punch you even harder, you know? Yeah, and realizing that it didn't even matter if we were fighting the right people. We just wanted to fight someone. Exactly, exactly. And like... That, I think, was, like, a bad revelation yeah. to me. Uh, that it wasn't about, like, figuring out, digging down to who did it, right, and punishing them. Because that might be deeply unsatisfying because, you know, the actual people were dead. Yeah. And uh, the people that we needed to go after, like Osama bin Laden or, say, like, the Saudi royal family for funding Correct. it. There like, you go. Osama bin Laden, it was going to take a lot of work and be hard and ultimately probably... Um, uh, not particularly cathartic uh, when it happened. And the Saudi royal family really couldn't go after. Yeah, I was so, going to say, when when Osama bin Laden was killed, by the time he was killed, there were kids on Twitter asking, who is Osama bin Laden? And it was very just like anticlimactic. Like, yeah. well, did it, did, it un, did it unfall the towers? Nope. <laughs> and it reminds me of like, you know, if kids I knew who were, who would be, desperately seeking like approval or love from their parents they couldn't like go out and punch their parents so they'd like pick on and hit the other kids and hurt the other kids around them yep right they just reached they just grabbed and hurt whoever they could get their hands on even if it wasn't actually the person that they ultimately wanted to get to and once i realized that that was the mode of a lot of american thinking it started feeling really bad like It was like another trauma of um, realizing that like we had this like fake unity at early on, but realizing that we weren't actually all in the same place. Yeah. Um, we were all processing yeah. it really, really differently. And that 100% of that unity that we felt was just from this like, I just remember this feeling of replaying, you know, anytime you're doing that thing, people say like, oh, when they get traumatized, it's like I was replaying it over and over and over again. That's something like your brain, the way it processes stuff is it's like, you know, it's just, it's a series of file drawers. All right. And it wants to put the files with other files that are like other files. When traumatic shit happens to you, the reason it's traumatic is like nothing that fucked up has ever happened to you. Like nothing. We had not seen anything that fucked up on TV. Right. Like, you know, I would argue that like for older generations who went to war or saw like horrific violence like for them the trauma was that it was here like it Mm -hmm. was in the united states and for the rest of us it was just like holy shit we just watched that happen and then for like two hours because like there's something there's something to be said for like the inability to look away Mm -hmm. you know what i mean when something horrific is happening and there's cameras and there's, you know, there is a true inability to look away. And all these people, you know, these camera people that were on the ground, the news people, firefighters, all those, they were, they're people like us, like they're experiencing this trauma in real time in the same way that all of us are. 
But boy, too traumatized to think like, should we rebroadcast all the footage of people jumping out of the buildings in close up? Mm, Maybe we'll skip that one, you know? Yeah. It did prepare me in a way, though, for what would happen sort of, you know, post-financial crisis. Yep. um, Where like once it was clear that the people actually responsible were not going to jail, we're not really going to be punished that like, I kind of knew that people were angry and they were going to hurt whoever they could get their hands on. And I wasn't sure who it was. Right. But it was going to happen eventually. And it was going to be against people who are like, because they can't like pick up Jamie Diamond and like throw him off a bridge. Like, you know, they can't burn Goldman Sachs to the ground. Yeah. You know, so they're going to have to find a way to justify how they can blame people they can get their hands on. And there was such a weird, like the Islamophobia in retrospect is one of the weirdest, grossest, like, there were all these wild, like, this is kind of like pre-Reddit, right? There's just, like, these, like, weird-ass nationalist Islamophobic rumors that went around. And one of them was, like, oh, like, U.S. troops were taking over pork blood and dipping all their bullets in pork blood so that when it, you know, eliminated a Muslim enemy target, they wouldn't be able to get into paradise. And it was just, like, all this weird... And it was told with such glee. Like, I remember... Oh my God. I remember finding out, Matt, that like my flute teacher, Donna Hayden, was just like a full blown right wing nut job and like uh. having that sort of creeping sensation. And she was obsessed with like, she loved calling Saddam Hussein Saddam Hussein because like sodomy. What? And, like, okay. That's. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. This, this is like, this is That's where we like were a- at. I'm just saying that just shows more about you than anything else. Like I, it's like when you hear somebody talk about their their ex, you know, husband's new partner, and it's just like, oh, that fat ugly bitch. And you're like, mm-hmm. how long have you guys been divorced? And they're like, ten years. Just like, lady, get over it. Like, go to therapy. Like, go to therapy, conservatives. Yeah. Go to therapy and say, like, listen. I felt the same trembling, horrible feeling inside as when I found my dad pants down in the barn behind a sheep, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm not trying to make too many jokes this episode because it is still a 9-11 episode, but like, yeah, some of this just stabbed at some of these boomers, like worse traumas in a way that like, it felt like their lives were all largely defined by fear and the red scare but that the comfort in that was that that shit happened somewhere else. And like the fact that it came to America, like broke their last, like, you know well, what I mean? Was, last I beam. I just, re- I, I, like looking back, I just remember the nineties was the moment the United States thought they had won. Yeah. Right. They're like the Berlin wall. We fucking won. We won everything. We won the, we won the cold war. We won the world. Like it's going to be a fucking America. Like, yeah, forever. Yep. Right. And part of that was like the trauma of growing up in the cold war and feeling vulnerable and scared as children. And now they're just like adults and they are invincible. Yeah. And then they are reminded very much that they are not. Yep. And like, 
and they reacted like terrified children. <laughs> you know, except with, you know, the full might of the U.S. military behind them. And like, that is what, this is the moment I remember, you know, I was, what, that was the first time I went to therapy was my freshman year of college, you know, so in the wake of 9-11. And I just remember being like, you know, I learned from Columbine that the world, that like violence and death did lurk <laughs> everywhere. And there was no real way to avoid it because the adults weren't going to do anything about it. So that was just like a fact of life. And like 9-11 was a reminder of that, that like... um the world can be a terrible and scary place and it doesn't mean it always is. It just can be, you know? And I'm like, but that, and what I was struggling with is that didn't motivate me to want to like point a gun at the head of every single person around me just in case. Yep. And I just felt like there were just so many people around me who could only feel safe when they could literally threaten the lives of every single person they came across. (laughs) Um, like the people are the, who just want to like open carry weapons everywhere all the time, right? I'm like, if that's the only way you can feel safe is by terrifying everyone around you, I'm just like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, there's going to be blowback. Like, there's no way, that is not a way to operate in the world. That I mean, is I not an you, actual way to be safe. I can tell you what's going to happen in a literal gun sense. You become the city of Indianapolis, which has the largest per capita incidence of child gun violence in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think that's an apt metaphor here because the only thing that ended up happening uh, in the war on terrorism is a bunch of American and uh, Iraqi and Afghani kids and teenagers just fucking died for no reason. Yep, um, exactly. There's Also, do you remember how often that the invocation or the terrorists win was used as just yeah. like broad justification oh, for some of the grossest behavior that's ever been seen the side of the Mississippi 100 to the point that it became a meme before we like had a before like meme was part of the vernacular i just correct i remember that we started using it for everything like yep um like hey could you uh share one of your uh popcorn shrimp or else the terrorists win if you don't, the terrorists win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I remember one of my friends used that when asking uh, his girlfriend to prom. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm it was actually sorry. pretty good. She thought it was very funny. <laughs> but like, that's where we were at. Like, it was a joke, but people were saying it like deadly serious. You guys, you guys don't even realize, oh my God, this all just feels like such a fucking fever dream. I didn't anticipate this episode bringing it back in such full color but one of the things that happened when we couldn't when france who is not like uh, you know like do you remember the fucking wild ass like anti-french bullshit that happened that was like so so okay so america was like we're gonna lie and get our coalition forces to like join us in a war and Mm -hmm. everyone's like okay cool and France is like, ah, I don't know. Like, seems like an awful lot of resources for, like, kind of a nebulous goal. feel like we should have maybe a little bit more defined parameters and terms here. France being a little bit too pragmatic for everybody's incredibly injured ego. Yep. And so America continued on its long track of losing its ever-loving motherfucking mind 
and everyone was was pissed at France, and we boycotted France to the to the degree that people renamed French fries Freedom Fries. I was gonna say fucking freedom fries there's a bar in claremont which is like a northwest suburb of indianapolis that still serves freedom fries it was like for for the i guess the gen z out there it kind of feels like but the bud light thing before bud light oh my god yes right it's like the craziest freak out over the dumbest possible thing resulting in the lamest possible outcome and like i remember it feeling like a joke yep the moment it happened feeling like oh no one would ever actually do that and then realizing people were deadly fucking serious about it it felt like an entire part of the political spectrum where those grandmothers who thought magic the gathering and harry potter was going to create an entire generation of satan worshipers that was but that was that was the bush era so bush was the last president who was like a quote-unquote compassionate conservative this is i feel like a thousand year old historian like sitting Mm -hmm. on a stump or something anyway back in my day conservatives actually claim to care about people when i was coming up uh we had i mean george bush he still had super hateful policies it's just like that's because george bush is like a simpleton and a fucking idiot so like he can't imagine a way in which banning abortion is bad because it saves babies like and i truly think that that's how george w bush thinks um like everything just conforms to his incredibly simplistic worldview and just the number of fucked up things. Like, if you're not familiar with the Dixie Chicks, probably the reason is oh my God. because they said at a concert that they didn't want, they were like, George, we're embarrassed that George Bush is from Texas, which like, mm-hmm. you know, the global consensus was like, this is kind of your thing, but because of, to borrow a phrase from George Washington, entangling alliances, maybe that was Dwight Eisenhower. Anyway, uh, same diff, you know, yeah. Eisenhower in Washington. Um, you know, a bunch of countries now are being dragged, uh, you know, human chain into quicksand style into a foreign conflict that was going to be incredibly expensive, as we said, with like kind of a nebulous definition of the enemy, very similar to Vietnam, which, as we all know, was like one of the greatest quagmires to ever drag in even more thousands, hundreds of thousands of American young GIs. Um, the other thing is I'm 35 and when I look at an 18 year old, uh, that's a kid. That's a child. I'll fall mm-hmm. for a lot of bullshit. Don't pee in my leg and tell me it's raining. Don't give me somebody with like a three quarters baked frontal lobe and say like, I think that one, that's somebody who needs an M16 in his hand. Like, um, and I, I, I mean, we're also at the age we can remember our peers going off to war and, with then coming back and being like, what the, f-? and being horribly wounded, some of them, but overall compared to other wars we've been in, like relatively light physical repercussions overall compared, I'm not saying that all of them, that there were not horrific injuries and deaths. I'm saying compared to other wars. Uh, but there is a trauma. I truly believe there's a trauma of being sent to war and realizing that it's all bullshit. Oh, <laughs> Who that's that was a uh, that was a generalized experience uh, for a lot of troops that um, were deployed later in the conflict. So like past 2004, for example, mm-hmm. of wondering, why am I here? What is this for? Yeah. Right. Like, it's definitely not for what they were told. They told us to get here. Right. Yeah. So I think there's a real 
I mean, and then you have like a few ways to go. You could either become cynical about everything or you can just try to say, well, then it, you have to believe the propaganda to justify it to yourself. That's another way. Or yeah. you can become activated the way that a lot of Vietnam veterans did, like, you know, the John Kerry's of the world and several, you know, people who got involved in politics who are Vietnam, who are uh, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Um but I also think that there's a trauma also of realizing you went to war when no one else did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When, you know, George Bush, when it asked like how the everyday American could help contribute to the war effort, he told us to go shopping. <sighs> um, and I don't know. Did you ever see the Werner Herzog um, documentary about Donald Rumsfeld? No. And th- it, it's done in you know typical Herzogian fashion but most of it is literally just a close-up the Herzog close-up of Rumsfeld's face fuck <laughs> like that's what most of it is right and it is it, it it was like it's fascinating insofar that this is it is it is like one of the better depictions of the banality of evil I've ever seen yeah yeah that this was a man who was completely devoid of all of the traits, all of the wisdom um, that you would want, who is making decisions over war and peace. Yep. Despite all of his experience in Washington and government, he lacked the core curiosity, compassion, and care that you would need for someone with that kind of power. Yep. Um, And it wasn't like he had eradicated it from himself. It was that he just never possessed it. Never sought it out. Never like, like a, like a bone deep in curiosity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just like a bone deep order taker, simplistic thinker. I mean, that's like, I have heard that about Rumsfeld from like various sort of political insiders who like, okay, I, oh my God, this fucking fever dream of the Bush era. You guys, they put pants on a nude statue. They put clothes these people were so there. I hate simpletons, simpletons. They were simpletons. It was like going, it was like the whole government being taken over by like a small town group of like small town municipal leadership who all attend the same Baptist church. Like it was Mm -hmm. one of the most intellectually maddening experiences, like not quite as much as Trump, but also Trump was not as competent as the Bush administration was. Um, So they were competent and evil and so convinced that they were doing like profound good in the world. That was it. There was a certitude and righteousness to it. Yes. That there's a, there's a crassness and a pettiness to um, the Bush people that that wasn't the Trump people. Sorry. The Trump people that it wasn't present in the Bush people. These were people who thought they were fucking Gandhi and mother Teresa. Correct. When they were, you know, lying about uh, uh, about going into Iraq. Yep. Right. I'm not saying this is not Cheney, but I'm saying like the Rumsfeld, the Wolfowitzes of the world. Like yep. they earnestly believed they were doing God's work on earth. 100%. And, you know, no, no one can ever say that Trump thinks he's doing God's work on earth or like, you know, Stephen Miller or whatever. There's no <laughs> righteousness there. There's just hatred and crass personal interest. But yes. like. You know, that's when I got really interested in, like, Dunning-Kruger shit. Um, 
people who are so incompetent, they don't recognize they're incompetent. People are so yes. dumb, we don't recognize they're dumb. I thought there was an interesting uh, uh, research recently about people who are uh, below average in physical attractiveness. Um, all think they're about average or slightly above average when they are not, obviously. And attractive people uh, who are significantly above average are either are dead on or actually slightly underestimate their own attractiveness. Yep. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it mirrors a lot of research about intelligence, stuff like that. And I just realized that Donald Rumsfeld was one of those people who was like a very good, like button pusher. He could push the button. He could, he could make sure the train ran on time. So he had a certain level of competence, but he had absolutely no capacity to think beyond that. Yes. Like, but when told your job is to invade this country, your job is to push this button. He's going to do it. Yes. He's going to slam jam that button. He's yeah. going to do, you know, he, to me, the Bush administration is like the personified simplistic thinking, right? Like personified mm-hmm. the incapacity to have nuance, shades of gray, whatever, right? Like, well, abortion's sad. Like abortion's sad. I know I keep harping on abortion. But like true. this is when that first started of just like earnestly, earnestly coalition. Remember the gay marriage fights? <laughs> Oh my God, the slippery slopes, Matt. The slippery, yeah. slippery, slippery slopes. The literal arguments is that if we legalize gay marriage, people are going to start marrying pets. They're going to start having sex yeah. with dogs and cats. Animals, yep. That was one of the arguments, honest to God, I know that sounds ridiculous, but that was said seriously. And in the I halls remember, of Congress. In the halls of Congress. And then like, I remember, you know, I was in college and- I'm sitting there for the 2004 election, looking at this disaster of a presidency, and yet knowing he's going to win again. Yep. And trying to wrap my mind around the fact that people could look at this disaster. Yep. And say, "Oh, totally, give me four more years of that." Yep. And Trauma. after John, after John Kerry was nominated, just knowing the least inspiring man ever at that point. Like just knowing that we were fucking gonna go off that cliff, and there are people who are gonna, and and like, it's like John that, Kerry, that, yeah, John. <clears throat> for the babies out there, John Kerry was the equivalent of a single worn shoe still left at a thrift store. Like it smelled fine; it wasn't like yeah. terribly destroyed, but it was about as inspiring as a very, very, very old beat up shoe by itself, not even with a matching pair that you could wear out of the store, just like sitting alone on a thrift store shelf. And we were like, "Damn!" Yeah. And I'm like, I remember, you know, I'd seen footage of John Kerry when he led the protests against the Vietnam War because he was a veteran, and when he was a young man, he came back and he led political protests. Actually, got into politics, and he was an inspirational figure. Here was a yep. man who was a decorated combat veteran. He was a goddamn American hero. And I remember, so Howard Dean came to my college's campus because it was right across. You know, he was in uh, Vermont, right across the border from my uh, my school in New Hampshire. And he came over to talk to us, and I had the luck to drive him back to his home. Nice. And I remember at the end, and I, I told him like John Kerry is an American hero. He needs, but and people want to be inspired by that. Like he needs to be that hero again. And Howard Dean just looked at me and was just like, just like shook his head, just like gave me like a little look, like that man doesn't exist anymore. Was sort That's of right. what he was conveying. <clears throat> and 
somewhere in his time in Washington and his personal ambition, that fire that like, I, it's like the old, like, you know, like that, that self, but that belief, that earnestness, that passion, it had died. Correct. And like John Kerry calculating, like, uh, married to the scion of the Heinz ketchup fortune <laughs> was inspiring no one. I was going to say, like, man, it's it's hard to get back that working man's American hero fire once you're sitting on that Heinz money. Right. And I'm just like. And I'm like, is this really the best we can do? And four years later, it's Barack Obama's, you know, it, it's Grant Park. But like. But then. <laughs> But, you know, and we know how that ultimately wound up. But I, I think that's part of when the 2016 election came around. It was a, like a PTSD reaction for me because I remember that feeling of just like vertigo of being like, this is who my fellow Americans are yes. in 2004, except now worse. Because I'm like, it is 2016 and we are doing this again, but worse. <clears throat> yeah, I was going to say like – uh, Bush, 2004 Bush is elected for the same reason as 2020 Joe Biden, right? Like we wanted somebody who seemed friendly and nice, right? Like times were scary. We want people, we want grandpa, we want dad, right? And that's the role that both of these people fulfilled. And I would argue are not particularly that far separated. Although Joe is listening to us and is moving leftward. I, I do believe because out of, you know, electoral necessity, but yeah. Joe is not uh, a barely functional alcoholic. Oh uh, yeah, that's uh, that's also true. Um, I, well, I'm he, just gonna say that this is my this is based on what I have heard from both Bush and Biden, um, and I am casting no aspersions on uh, George W. Bush. Um, I am simply asserting, with no further implication, that Joe Biden, as far as I know, is not a barely functional alcoholic. <laughs> I pass no judgment on the status of now or then about George W. Bush. Uh, it, it just, the when I, w like, I was excited to do this episode because like 2016 kind of felt like the sort of apogee of that exact, mm. like the post 9-11 right-wing politics that was born, right? Out of that just like defiant, angry, hurt, threatened, like, and all the sort of, overwhelming white hot rage that comes out of that right like famously <clears throat> the onion uh in 2012 um when barack obama won his second term published the headline uh gop debuts 2016 candidate white hot ball of rage yeah yeah and that was in 2012 i just yeah. want to say once again the onion ah i love you so much um but that like this is you know, the Tea Party started under Barack Obama, which was really, really close to his uh, election. Like, not enough for him to have done any substantive legislation change. And people were like, I'm taxed enough already. And it's just like, let yeah. the man cook for six months, for God's sake. Yeah. Which was, again, once again, that started the era that we know now, which is the astroturfing of these so quote unquote grassroots organizations. Like, all of this, all of this comes from Bush policy, like enormously concentrating wealth, right? Like, 
like Mm -hmm. hugely contributing to the stratification of like upper levels of wealth combined with those people. God, how many times do we have to do this? Those people buying Supreme Court justices who then rule citizens on Citizens United during the Barack Obama era. And Mm -hmm. then it just concentrates the power and the money concentrates in these cycles over and over again. And then you get someone like Trump. Yeah. Doom loop. loop. Yes. And like, I, you know, but I guess like I was naive in 2008 in thinking that like the fever was broken. Um, And then, you know, we won again in 2012. I'm just like, okay, at least it's normal now. Like, you know, John McCain and Mitt Romney were significantly more credible opponents and competent politicians than George W. Bush. I'm just like, okay. They're not putting up crazy people anymore because, you know, it was George H.W. Bush in 92 and then Bob Dole in 96, which is like very normal. Then it's George W. who's just like a major downgrade. But then it's, you know, back to normal service. John McCain. um, It's Mitt Romney. And I'm just like, okay, you know, at least the opposition is back to something verging on sane and Mm -hmm. normal. And then I was just like, ah, fuck, no, nah, you know, I mean, they could only hold the crazy in for so long. And like, this is why, you know, there have been a lot of very nice things written about Mitt Romney now that he's retiring from the Senate. He won't, he's not running for election again in 2024. And I think that they are in terms of like his recent history, true that, you know, he was the only uh, senator in history to vote to impeach a uh, president of his own party. Like that yeah. is a flower for him but i kind of underestimated the acquiescence of that sane wing of the party to the crazies because you know romney you know like ran away from his signature legislative achievement as governor he had you know which was romney care which was obamacare in massachusetts like yeah and like all the things that had made him a successful moderate politician, moderate Republican politician, he just turned his back on entirely. Yep. And like, he now talks about how he, about the the real struggle. And I, I can see it play out for him personally between his personal ambition and the good of the nation. Yeah. Right. That he viewed them at times in tension, but what both, the 9-11 era start, made clear to me and then became doubled down in the Trump era is that for some people, it's not a struggle. Yep. Yep. It's like, never, no. It's not, like, never a struggle. What, what scared me when Trump first got elected is realizing that Trump, it doesn't like, the again, the truth doesn't matter to Trump. Like the reality is an elastic, not fixed concept that changes depending on what he needs in the moment. And I mean, yeah. the next moment, if he needs something <laughs> else, reality will change. Like, yeah. and to your point, like there is, he's never going to stop and question for a second, whether or not his personal ambitions are intention <laughs> with the well-being of the United States. Like he's like, why wouldn't I charge foreign dignitaries to stay at Trump at uh Trump hotel? And yeah. then, use that to curry political favor. Duh. And like the whiplash over that period. And like, I remember one of the reasons George W. Bush 
was like loved on the evangelical right is that he was born again and that in all, you know, he lacked a lot of the personal failings of a uh, Bill Clinton. He wasn't a womanizer, right? Yeah. He, he was a recovering yeah. alcoholic, but he owned it. Yep. You know, that like he was, he had some level of personal virtue. Yeah. Um, and at that time, when evangelical Christians were polled on the importance of virtual of, of personal virtue in a, in a president over 70% of them said that it was very important. It was necessary. Yeah. But after Trump, same polling, same question, less than 20 years, it had gone from over 70% to around 35%. Fuck. It dropped by more than half Fuck. Fuck. of them thought that personal virtue mattered in a president. Oh my God. And, that to me was like shocking in so far that like it was shocking in so far that like I always knew for some people like for some percentage of people I always thought it was relatively small um they, their values were just a pose they, yep. they, they they didn't actually represent anything meaningful um but it was shocking to me that it was such a large percentage. Could and it wasn't like oh they modified a little bit it was like a full one eighty like it was um like you know growing up as a Yankees fan and then just suddenly over in less than a decade suddenly you're like fuck the Yankees go Red Sox like that is not, I'm giving an analogy for you know obviously it's worse than that but like <laughs> but like it is a level of like of bone deep I don't I mean. I don't even know if it's hypocrisy because maybe they didn't believe it in the first place, but like, yeah. and it, I have to say, you can probably hear from the way I struggle with it is it still really bothers me. And I find it baffling to this day. Like I, yeah. because you know, for those of you who know me that like my beliefs, and I, I hope that this comes across in the podcast, like they are deeply meaningful to me and I take them very, very seriously. And again, I'm not religious, but the things I do believe in the values I do have, like, I understand they are costly and they do cost me at times. Um, I'm not just like personally, but sometimes, you know, uh, financially, sometimes uh, emotionally. But I do it because if I'm going to say that they matter to me, then living them is a matter of almost like self-respect and self-worth. Yeah. I I have used the phrase uh, in the last week talking to somebody who's working in another in a government position, right? Which is like giving a shit is a burden a lot of times. Like the larger the org that you work in, like giving a shit about other people or your mission or something like at some point, like you said, is in tension with whatever your job is with regard to its benefit to the organization at large, right? And um. I mean, I think to your point about the evangelicals and their their fundamental like change here, it's that like this is that, you know, the family, like the whole thing about the family where it's like, well, like when when Trump first got like nominated, um, the evangelical right said like, well, you know, what matters is what is is how many people come to God through Trump. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that's their that's their broad justification for that 180 degree virtue turnaround, um, which I think is uh boy howdy fascinating but i mean you can see that the the sort of early bush era to today 
the full and complete turnaround on like in the Bible, Matt, the Jesus is very, very clear at certain points and a lot of times tells stories in allegory. Mm-hmm. There are two things that he is not unclear about, which is he says, and I quote, it would be easier to pe- for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Number one. Mm-hmm. These other two, these these bunch of guys come up to Jesus and they're like, hey, you got to tell that slutty whore to cover up. She's make, she's giving us all boners. And we all know like that leads to sin. And Jesus said, uh, well, if it's your right eye that offends you, you've got to pluck it out and throw it away. And if it's your mm-hmm. left eye, you got to pluck it out. Chuck that baby right over yep. a fence. You'll yep. never know where that is because you've not down two eyes. But, you know, <laughs> there are two things that Jesus is exceedingly clear about which is wealth accumulation at the expense of your fellow person who is starving Mm -hmm. or homeless and um your sexual temptation is your own problem to deal with and it's your responsibility and what have we seen over the last you know 20 years of the evangelical right which is like well if you pray hard enough god will make you rich and if you're not rich it's because you're not praying hard enough and uh (sighs) You know, let's just put those ladies in some burlap sacks yeah. because God forbid we see the curvature of a hip or a boob. Oh, the prosperity gospel. That could be in a whole separate. I think that should be a whole separate should episode. Be. I yeah. got feels about that. But like, I think you're 100% right that like. Uh, you know, I always had complicated relationship to faith and yeah. faith communities and people of faith. And. As I as I started seeing this, I just started paying less and less attention to what people said, and I just started paying more and more attention to how they lived and what they did, what they spent yeah. their time on, what they spent their energy and love and focus on. And it was the like, just don't tell me what your values are, just show me what you do. Joe Biden yeah. used to say, "Show me your budget, and I'll tell you what your values are." And like, <laughs> I, I I think that you know there are a lot of things you can do that express your values that are monetary. He was talking in a government sense, but sure. like. I think that, you know, the personal uh, analogy to that is like, just show me what you spend your time on. And then I'll tell you what you actually worship, what you actually love. And David Foster Wallace also gives uh, a version of this. He's like, what you pay attention to is what matters to you. There's no other way. Like, so if you pay, if you're always worrying about how much money you have, you'll always feel poor. If you always worry about how beautiful you are, you'll always feel ugly. Yeah. Right. So pay attention to the things that matter. And then that will be the things you worship. And those are be the things that you love. And that's what you fill your life with. And like, I just started, it's why like, I've have so little patience now yeah. for people who try to, as you said, like it's the um, McBling version of patriotism. Yes, yes. Right, the giant flag, the giant flag pin, the, uh, like, um, like, if you don't like America, why don't you leave sort of bullshit rhetoric. Like, I don't, like, don't tell me how much you love your country. Don't tell me how much you believe in the Constitution. I don't care if you carry a Constitution around in your pocket. What I care about is when the chips are down, when the democracy is in peril, when they're literal insurrectionists in the Capitol, what are you doing? In the day, in in that moment, in the days and weeks and years that follow, what are you doing? And the answer that Mitt Romney came to, and I think is correct, is that many of his fellow Republicans don't care about the Constitution at all. They only care about their own power. And his leaving showed that he is finally where I was in 2004, 
which was just giving up on the Republican Party. I realized yeah. at that point that there was no point with a lot of these Republican voters and trying to appeal to their better angels because they didn't have any. That's correct. Well, and you, you can investigate. Uh, there are all these, like the evangelical right loves to fetishize Africa. They love to fetishize, especially like any countries that have been like severely, severely affected by HIV. So a lot of like sub-Saharan African countries, which are like right at the crossroads of like, just like brutal colonialism and then being ravaged by HIV and AIDS. Um, and, you know, you talk to them about like what they actually want. And they're like, oh, we want to bring people to God. And it's like, but okay, but then, but then what, right? Like, then do you, are you going to give them anti-retrovirals? Nope. Are you going to do like sexual health trainings? Nope. Are you going to do medical missionaries? Nope. That's another group does that, right? Like that's a, that's a actually a non-religious group that uh, does most uh-huh. of the uh, effective uh, doctors without borders. That's what, what I'm thinking of. Um, and in the sim, in a, so I, I was at the selling of the farmer's market last Wednesday and um, a couple of evangelicals came up to or uh, Baptists. They were doing, they were having a literal tent revival, Matt, and they were inviting me to their tent revival and they'd already paid for honey. So I was happy to, to really give them a piece of my mind. Um, but they said, Oh, you know, we're, we're bringing people to Christ. And I said, okay. And then what? They're like, Oh, you know, it's, it's important for people to give their lives over to Jesus and to, you know, convert and, and then take the Jesus as their Lord and savior. And I said, okay, but then what, like, what, what, you know, do you offer people like, he's like, Oh, you know, the Lord helps people get off drugs. The Lord's done miracles. I was like, Nope. Uh, addiction programs help people get off drugs. Are you funding those? Like, are you, do you have a, you know, along with your traveling tent revival, do you bring us a trailer that's full of dry non-perishable foods to give out to like poor people who are looking for medication assisted therapy? Yeah. How about, how about like there is, I brought up this before, but like if churches are confused about what they should be doing, there's a church in North Carolina that bought up their entire congregation's medical debt and cleared it for $15,000. There you go. That's really simple. It's not very sexy, but if you really want to help people do not worry so much about bringing them to God as, as you know, and I, we we're we bring this up because like, this is when this really started in earnest, like restarted in modern earnestness, right? Where it's like, yeah. you have mega churches that look like the Superdome and you have these uh, live bands and you have like sound and light shows and it's, oh, shoot me in the face. Um, but this is but like they have, the beginning They have all that. that stuff, but they're not, but they're not, for example, providing no or low cost housing. They're Correct. not providing no or low cost childcare. They're yep. not providing job training and if they yeah. do it's only to members of their congregation it's not yeah. to groups that they call lazy or not worthy they're not doing <laughs> it in black and brown communities they're not yeah. doing it with immigrants like it is the kind of i i, I love this like it's the kind of mcbling morality yes yes that, yes yes that i just find like so deeply repellent it is the um, yeah, I think it's the moral or ethical equivalent of that fucking like Kylie Jenner ad. What was it? Or no, it was the the Pepsi commercial with. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right, Kendall. No, Kylie. Kendall, you're right, Kylie. Yeah, yeah. Her solving racism in a fucking Pepsi commercial by giving a <laughs> like racist cops by giving them a Pepsi. Like it's that. Um, <sighs> when when like real people's problems there's another pastor that i follow on facebook just like because i happen to you know facebook serves you some content right and you're like whatever 
Uh, but there's this guy in like in uh, Kentucky, in, in um, eastern Kentucky, in like near Appalachia, where like um, on their security cameras, they noticed that somebody was sleeping on the bench outside there. Uh, so like they brought him some cushions for the bench and they put like blankets out by the bench. And they said like, Hey, we, you know, they left a note that said like, Hey, you know, we serve food on these days. Like we'd love to have you. They left him a little sack lunch, like, uh, and then they just decided like, Hey, maybe we should just build like, uh, like rough housing. Right. Like they can't necessarily, they don't necessarily have the funds to build like a small community. Right. But like mm-hmm. you can build like, um, in this, like, uh, uh, hikers, these like hiking shelters, basically, where it's like you yeah. are safe from the precipitation and the wind, and like it's better than nothing. Yeah. And if you're too embarrassed to like go to a center and say like I'm homeless, I need a house, like you could pop in there, get some sleep, leave in the morning before anybody notices you. Exactly. That's really meeting people where they are and like deep in the complexity of problems and social mores and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when we talk about like living in the post 9-11 world it's like this is this is the two separate things to me right which is like mcbling spirituality mcbling christianity and also this like really bizarre and proud march toward fascism this is like to me the beginning of the right wing being um the party of i didn't realize the lion would eat my face says lions eating faces party voter you know it's also the era of uh, it just I laid bare to me how many people don't listen to what other people <laughs> are asking for when they want help. Instead, yeah. they tell them, no, you need this. When yeah. the other person's like, no, I really I don't need that. Uh, I actually, you know, that we're just telling Iraq and Afghanistan, you need liberal democracy. You need capitalism. And they're like, we actually kind of need access to farming technology. <laughs> <laughs> like, we actually need you guys clean to come sources back and- of water. Like, clean up all the other shit you fucked up, yeah. like, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago the first time you came in and fucked up all of our infrastructure. Like, the 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 moment that really changed for me is seeing photos of, ooh, is this going to make me tear up? Uh, like, pre-Cultural um, Revolution Afghanistan of, like, um, you know, a free society, right? It looked like... Yeah. It looked like Middle Eastern people in American clothes in like in their leisure suits and like women were out mm-hmm. driving. There was no veils. There was none of that stuff. Right. It, and like that the the world that was being sold to us as primitive and like all these like super Islamophobic racist things like this was a creation of our government, of mm-hmm. our government. That's like now trying to convince us that the righteous thing to do is to bomb them back into oblivion one more time. Remember shock and awe? Shock and awe. So uh, can I tell you a fun story about a, a crazy day in March that I had in 2003? Mm-hmm. Um, my school took a trip to Hong Kong in China because two of my teachers had been teachers in the international school there. And it was right during the beginning of the SARS epidemic. Um, so um, when I got home, uh, I got off the plane and a person in a yellow Tyvek suit um, with like a backpack breather handed me a postcard that said hey if you start coughing just like pop on down to your doctor's house and tell them that you just come from china i got home that night uh and then as i was watching tv that was when the the very first volleys into iraq started and i was like what a day what a day to be in a quite soupy thick of uh many social and cultural events (laughs) And, like, I remember seeing that with, like, this sense of dread. Yeah. Like, this this deep 
bone dread of like, this is the start of something terrible. And yep. I also remember the glee some people had, like the bomb them back to the stone age shit. And the thing I asked always, you know, I'm in college. I'm like, and how do we bring them out of the stone age? <laughs> Yeah, And let's say, and they're just like, well, that's not our fucking problem. They attacked us. And I'm like, let, I don't think they did, but let's say they did. Um, we bomb them back to the stone age. We leave them there like you want. How do you think that's going to impact our national security going forward? Are they going to be happy about it? He's like, well, they can't do anything to us. If you know, we keep our troops over there. I'm like, how long? How long? You bomb them back to the Stone Age. How are you going to keep them there? If you're not going to help them, you got to keep them there. How long? And like, they never thought that far. It was just the wonderful joy of breaking something. Yes. And then thinking magically, like a toddler, that someone else will clean up the mess. It was punishment. Like, it was yeah. just like the the bloodthirsty desire to hand out punishment. And it again, it felt like just an extension of our national hurt psyche, you know? Yeah. It's, it reminded me of the of the child who, you know, makes a mess and then all everyone cleans up for them and they just start to assume that, that that's how the world works. Yep. And then they become an adult and suddenly the messes aren't getting cleaned up and it's everyone else's fault. Of course. I mean, you know, I remember seeing the first images of like the violence from ISIS coming back from Iraq and being like, oh, oh. Oh, that's why the Hussein family had ruled with a brutal iron fist. Uh, you know, I mean, like the other thing that we were like not allowed to have uh, and like my teachers, luckily, but like I remember teachers getting in trouble for having too nuanced of a conversation about like what happens to a group of people that are bombed to the Stone Age and then that yeah. generation grows up. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to want to do? Bomb those motherfuckers into the Stone Age as well, right? Like, mm -hmm. this is the most... It killed me because it, it... As I got older, the humanity of this conflict felt so... Ah, what's the word, Matt? It's just like the sort of unavoidable recklessness of hurt mm. feelings of mm -hmm. trauma of like I don't know what to do with how scared and disorganized I feel on the inside so I'm just going to punch and kick my way through the entire world and make sure that nobody gets close enough to me to hurt me you know yeah it, it reminded me you know I was studying just starting my studies of anthropology and I remember feeling both like and like looking at tribes that would do like raids back and forth right with this very ritualized violence yep and of like reprisals and and kidnappings uh over honor and stuff like that and there's like i'm like you know they should just sit down and figure it out because this is a waste of time and energy and lives and resources and everything and and I'm like, so this is how I'm like, so this is how primitive people work. And then I immediately was just like, that's wrong. Cause that's what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. And I'm like, we're just doing it with nicer shit. I was going to say like, maybe that is what primitive people are doing. If that is true, we are all like, that's what we are moving and acting out of is like our most primitive urge to eye for an eye, you know, 
And then I'm just like, but this, like, if I think it's dumb for them, I need to think it's also dumb for us. And then I was just like, oh, but then I'm like, (laughs) okay, but I'm, but I'm like, I am 19 and I am coming to this conclusion. How old are these people? Yeah. And like, that's when I got very, very, very frustrated of not being taken seriously by overgrown children. Yep. Um, and I still feel that way now that people who are just like, well, you know, you look down on us and you think that we're backward. We're going to vote in Trump and we're going to punish you. I'm just like, you are children. And I'm not And like, it's hard for me. They're like, you need to respect them and listen to them. I'm just like, I know what they think. I listen to them all the time. I've listened to them my whole fucking life. Yep. The problem is that they've never taken the time to do the same. Yep. Like, and at a certain point, you can't reason with someone and you can't you can't reason with someone who didn't reason themselves to where they are and you can't accommodate someone who refuses to be accommodated perfect right they will the the pit of need the raging fear and want and terror i can't fix by giving them giving away my humanity Or my life. I can't fix that. I can't give Elon Musk enough money or attention to fill the burning, uh, bottomless void (laughs) in his soul. I cannot, you know, I I cannot uh, 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 act like kowtow enough to the Donald Trumps of the world to satisfy them. All I can do is fight them. That's all. They're the only avenue they've left. That's right. And like, do you feel like this was kind of like the the place, the scaffolding, if you will, for like the boomers versus millennials, like the weird boomers versus millennials conflict that has like played out in the media over the years? Well, I just I just realized that like the boomers will never have enough. Yeah, of course. They'll never live long enough. They'll never be wealthy enough. They'll never have enough. And so we can't just sit around asking for our turn because yeah. as long as they can hold on, they'll never give it up. Correct. They'll never share. It's like an entire generation of only children. Correct. Um, and I'm like, I remember like the classic example of like the little emperor syndrome in um, Japan because they had a lot of only children because it's so expensive to raise children in Japan. There was a child who stabbed his mother to death because she didn't make him his favorite dumplings on demand. Yeah. I mean, we're like what it sounds like we're both being dramatic and speaking in metaphors. And of course we are. But like Mm -hmm. all of American culture has revolved around boomers and like the maturation of boomers, like all of the the wealth trends and all the culture trends have followed like boomers growing up, having kids at certain times. Like, you know, the explosion of Disney movies happened when I was a kid. Right. When boomers were raising their millennial children. Um, And we are being told one time my dad right when Barack Obama got elected uh, when they decided they were going to be tea party activists is my dad has three had at the time three Porsches uh 75 87 and a 97 and he also drove a 1991 Mercedes Roadster um SL class with ground effects. So what you're telling me is that all of his politics is driven by his very real economic precarity. Very real economic precarity, right? Yeah, his, he's one of the those economically anxious Trump voters. 
And uh, he is economically anxious. And by that, I mean, when I suggested that maybe he doesn't need four cars when you can only drive one of them at a time, he got so angry, his face turned fucking purple. Mm -hmm. And like, he was so enraged by the idea that like, this like Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama is going to wage a tax so burdensome against him. He's going to have to sell one of his sports cars. Like you know, the thing that he earned with his money. I mean, I mean, sir, it was one of the most unhinged. It was unhinged. Well, instead of, you know, if we really wanted to afford healthcare, instead of asking this grand sacrifice of him, you know, you and I really just should have, you know, stopped drinking Starbucks lattes. Ha! <laughs> Matt, have I ever told you that one of his partners, when Obama first got elected and was proposing, like, they were going through the proposals of what Obamacare might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his one of his coworkers, one of the other surgeons in the practice, compared it to, oh, I'm going to let you guess, compared it to what other American social event and legal event? Watergate? Uh, oh, earlier. Pearl Harbor? A, a, a much greater human tragedy. Pearl Harbor. Go back. Keep going back. Civil War. Oh, we're we're hovering around the subject. Okay. Uh, Lord, um, what happened around the Civil War? <laughs> uh, Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> I don't know. What did the Civil? What was the Civil War fought about? Slavery. Oh, hey. sl- oh no! Oh no! Oh no! I didn't want to go there. Hey, I felt like I was going to fulfill Godwin's law. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. No, it was either going to be the Holocaust or slavery. I'm actually surprised that he uh, went with slavery when the Holocaust was right there. Was but, right uh, there, shit. Um, but yeah, he said, um, we, we become slaves at that point. And I was like, I remember the mouth open, because I was, again, you and I, we were teenagers. Like, yeah. I was literally 19, maybe 20 years old. But like, staring at this man with my mouth wide open as he compared being quote unquote I, it's the forced it's forced that kills mm. me forced to do surgery on patients who couldn't afford it um was basically wait. slavery wait what 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 <sighs> matt in my lifetime in my lifetime <laughs> in my lifetime my dad did a open heart did a uh, open bypass on a popcorn farmer um and this popcorn farmer for decades would make little tiny payments. This is back when my dad would collect his surgeon's fees directly, Um, Mm -hmm. would pay in little tiny increments. And then every time he had a popcorn harvest, oh, it's going to make me cry. He would send us cases of popcorn. Mm -hmm. And that's how we paid for his open heart. And my dad finally, after taking pallets of popcorn over the years, called him and was like, why don't we just call it even, right? Like, but like, think about how long he took yeah. popcorn and a few hundred dollars at a time mm-hmm. that he didn't question. Maybe the system's fucked up. Yeah, my grandfather was a family doctor, uh, you know, back in the day, and he just accepted a lot of times whatever payment the family had. Yeah, um, and often that was nothing. Um, yeah. and he got criticized by his my grandmother, who was not the good grandmother, the crazy. <laughs> A terrible one who said she didn't want yellow grandkids um oh <sighs> yeah and so but that didn't in despite the criticism and lack of uh love from his wife like he just kept doing it because he was a doctor yeah right that's why he was there 
was yeah. to help them. He wasn't there to get the money. He was there to do the help. And yeah. like, I like, <laughs> you know, I, I have always struggled. And we'll wrap up here. Like I have always yeah. struggled and I continue to struggle in sort of the, now the era of Trump, but like of people who seek power with no goal. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, aside from like, uh, you know, even at some point, right? Like they surpass personal enrichment, right? Like yeah. we all know that it's not possible to spend a billion dollars in your lifetime. There's not yeah. anything that you can spend it on. Right. So like we are talking about the Elon Musk of the world, but what on, on the flip side too, what kills me about like the sort of post nine 11 conspiracy era where like, uh, you know, in the, in the vaccine world, in the sort of post pandemic world, just like, Oh, these doctors making all this money off of vaccines. And it's like, Oh God, first of all, <laughs> man, man, if only that were true. Yeah. Uh, secondly, like if you're a pretty soulless human being who wants to be super rich, there are way faster yeah. and easier ways to do it than to become a physician. Let me tell yeah. you. But like, especially the politicians, like on one level, I understood George W. Bush and Wolfowitz. Like I understood because they had a real vision of what a good world looked like and they yeah. were trying to get there. I thought they were dead wrong and incredibly stupid. Yes. But like on one level, I understood they are trying to do, do the right thing, even if their idea of the good is monstrous. Right. Yes. I understand that person. What I don't understand are the Josh Hawleys of the world mm -hmm. or the Ted Cruz's of the world or even like the Lindsey Graham's of the world. Like they just want the thing to have the thing and like they don't do anything with it when they have it. Nope. They just feel as if to not have it is a form of death. Yeah. And like. Do you think that it's not it's it's not to have it. It's that somebody else who doesn't deserve, deserve it, it. have it. Po yeah, that is also possibly true. I don't get that. It's also like, I don't understand people who are just like, if I can't have you, no one will. Like, I don't get that either. Like, I told you I once had a boss who just told me how he wanted to give the keynote at a big conference. But that's it. That's where his fantasy about it stopped. He didn't have anything he wanted to say. He just <laughs> literally just wanted to be the person up there talking. That's it. That's time out. That's a whole industry by the way, like that's a whole industry of you can just get hire a keynote speaker and it's just like picking a fucking doll out of a out of a curio cabinet. Anyway, carry on. By the way, if anybody wants to hire me to give keynotes, I have things <laughs> I actually do want to say. Oh, right? me too. And I will, yeah. I will not cuss as required by the by the contract. Yeah, like I would like. And this is the thing. This is the thing that like I have just discovered. There are just so many fucking people. <laughs> so many fucking people who just want that. That, that that's literally their overriding passion in life that's what they spend their time and energy on right just to have the thing so the no thing. one else can have it and mm -hmm. i'm just like and that's where i am that's where i struggle now of trying to like understand uh the world and the politics that we have right now is like i got the post 9-11 world of like anger and fear and confusion and like wanting the world to be better, fucking it up terribly, but wanting that. And now it's just 
empty greed and ambition with nothing else. It's like raw and naked, just that. And I'm like, I want the money so I can fucking Scrooge McDuck in it. I want the money so I can lie on it like a dragon. Like, and that I just don't, that I will never understand. It's maybe some deep, terrible flaw uh, in my American soul. But, you know, I have to say that that's where I've sort of, that's where the sense of like confusion and dislocation and like alienation and like uh, a disorientation I am right now. I'm just in a world now where uh, that the people who are trying to get things don't seem to want to do anything with them, but they're willing to give up everything and burn the whole place down just to have it. I mean, this whole thing started about as a discussion of, the post 9-11 world, but I think that this elegantly wraps it all up, which is like, we are still living in the post 9-11 world, right? We're living in uh, the sort of weird fatalism that happens when a generation of boomers is promised the world and a lot of happiness. And then they get like all the economic power basically. And the happiness does not follow as it turns out. It turns out Peter Princeling principling your finances until you're always like, You've heard that that survey, right, mm-hmm. where they said, like, how much money would it take for you to be, like, really happy? And, like, every single person at increments of $10,000 said $10,000, like, <laughs> and it was only substantively true for, like, the bottom 3% that it would, like, it would improve their, their way of life. But, you, you know, know I mean, like. funny to me is that I actually know exactly, I, I have had different income, vastly different incomes at different times yeah. in my life. And oddly enough, there is a certain level at which I am just happy. I don't worry about it anymore. I don't think about it. I can make more, but it's not a priority. Like, I can then just go out and enjoy the rest of my life. It is calculable per uh, uh, zip code. So there is a certain amount of money that absolutely will make you happy. But, you know, we are in the post-9-11, post-McBling, re-entering a McBling era, which I think, like... I think the pandemic was like a very, very slow 9-11. And there were days during the pandemic yeah. when we were we were having a 9-11 every day. We were having a 9-11's yeah. worth of deaths every day. And it's the funny thing is that I remember during in 2020 saying that and expressing that exact feeling. But the surreal the, the surreal part was not watching it on TV anymore. The surreal part was like the surreal part was when I took Benny to the vet. And I was driving by a China buffet and there were people sitting in their cars, eating at the China buffet, but in their car and just handing the empty plates and telling the people to run in and get them the food they wanted. God damn. Like the surrealness was like, why would you do that for a China, of all fucking things, (laughs) China buffet. Like the surreal, yeah. and also then just people just walking around unmasked, um, in the height of the pandemic in rural, uh, in rural Missouri, acting like it wasn't happening, insisting that it wasn't happening, as I know the fucking case rates there, and like then I'm in, you know, in, in the city where everyone's being super careful, everyone's being so so cautious, and yet the case rates are much lower there, and I'm just like, I, and then I'm just like, you know, uh feel like I'm in stranger things. I like everything is the upside down now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you it's, know, I have to say though that Sarah, it is nice. I do feel more sane. Uh, thanks to the podcast and spending time with you. Oh, same. Oh, same. It's nice. Uh, 
you know, the, the greatest relief of my 30s is meeting a bunch of people who are like, holy fuck. And I'm like, holy fuck. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, fuck. I've been waiting for someone to just holy fuck back in my face at the same volume. And I'm finally making those friends who are like, no, no, I'm a lawyer. Holy fuck. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like. And then also being, I have to say, in like, I remember being in law school, being like, everything is fucked. And everyone's like, yeah, it's actually not that bad. And then Trump happens. And I'm like, I told you everything is fucked. And they're like, eh, it's still not that bad. And then everything starts to fall apart. Then everyone's like, holy shit. I'm just like, well, welcome to me four years ago, guys. But like, I'm happy you caught up. I'm like, this is the worst I told you so ever because it feels like shit, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels real bad. It feels real bad. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for, for once again choosing to meet me here in this terrible space that we that we meet in and talk about. Yeah, and of course. I mean, and I'm just happy we get to do this with all of our listeners who get to, get to the, you know, burn in the hellscape along with us. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just like, you know, we just pretend we're having a barbecue. Um, so... <laughs> Speaking of barbecues, uh, and we're not going to do the whole spiel because that seems a little weird. Go to metalhoney.com. Yeah. Or don't. Or or in solidarity with all the lives lost in 9-11, do whatever you want. I don't, don't, don't buy this because after we talk, it's cursed. Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, or if you do, like, you know, don't do it because of 9-11. Put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, but as always, you know, like, subscribe, share, um, comment, rate, review. Um, we love to build the community. If you have questions, send them in. If you want to share your own thoughts and feelings about living in the post 9-11 world, you know, share it with us. It's at Perp Stew uh, on the platform formerly known as Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, we just we're happy to be here with you. You help keep yeah. us a little bit sane. Thanks, you. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for giving us a reason yeah. to do this because it's pretty awesome. And uh, it makes me feel a lot less insane and screaming into the void um and uh i don't know i love it i'm really yeah, it turns proud out of, that I'm... there are other people out in the void so you're not just screaming into nothingness <laughs> <laughs> well this has been the perpetual stew uh i'm matthew goodman and i'm sarah merle and until next time stay curious bye